Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show, training for men and answers for women. Joining me today is Ian Urbina. He is an investigative reporter based in Washington. His most recent stories, The Outlaw Ocean, chronicles a diversity of crimes offshore, including the killing of stowaways, sea slavery, intentional dumping, illegal fishing, the stealing of ships, gun running, standing of crew, and murder with impunity. He has reported from Africa, Asia, Europe, South America, and the Middle East, much of the time spent on fishing ships. Mr. Urbina has also written extensively on criminal justice issues, including stories about the use of prisoners for pharmaceutical experiments, immigrant detainees working unpaid, solitary confinement in immigration detention facilities, and the dependence of the U.S. Defense Department on prison-based labor. Several of his stories have been made into feature films. In 2008, he was also the member of a team of reporters that broke the story about then-Governor Elliot Spitzer of New York and his use of prostitutes, a series of stories for which the New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize in 2009. In 2016, he won a Polk Award for the Outlaw Ocean series and several other awards for a series called Drilling Down about fracking. Before joining the New York Times in 2003, he was in a doctoral program uh, in history and anthropology at the University of Chicago, where he specialized on Cuba. So, I mean, just a, just a few things here. He's Emmy-nominated. Um, he's the uh, founder of a, a nonprofit called The Outlaw Project. Uh, which is dedicated to producing journalism about the environmental, human rights, and labor concerns that exist offshore and around the world. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, winner an accomplished long-distance runner. I mean, th- this guy is like, I, I think I liken him in the beginning of the show to a modern-day investigative journalist, Indiana Jones. I mean, uh, he describes a story in the beginning of the show where he is a part of the longest at sea pursuit ever recorded in history <laughs> the longest at sea pursuit ever recorded in history just to give you a sense uh, of what we're going to talk about so i wanted to i wanted to have Ian on the show for a number of reasons but mostly because he chronicles and, and details the lives of men in very different experiences in parts of the world mostly at sea which is this sort of uh, as as we dive into this in this episode it really is this sort of like wild west of the world, and yet it is responsible for so much uh, of our distribution, of our import export, of our you know the 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 fish that you eat, the just so much of of what you consume uh, has been brought to you by the open ocean and by the seas. And so uh, this is a really interesting conversation. It's different from what I would normally dig into. Um, But just to give you a sense of what he's all about, here's a quick quote. Slavery is a harsh reality that our better angels would like to think ended two centuries ago when many countries passed laws against such bondage within their borders. But this sort of bondage is a global blind spot because governments, companies, and consumers either don't know it occurs when they do prefer to look the other way. Uh, so, I mean, he really gives uh, a powerful look into 
parts of the world that we just never even know about um, and and the lives of men that we would never uh, otherwise hear about. And so this is a very interesting experience from a man who has uh, traveled around the world and really seen and taken part in uh, and, and, and been witness to um, atrocities and travesties. Without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Ian Urbina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so wonderful to be here. I think, as I as I mentioned to you before, uh, your your work is is quite interesting and may, maybe a little bit different from what I would normally tackle on the show. But I'm actually very interested to hear some of the stories that you have to tell, um, mostly because this the way that you write your stories and some of the adventures that you've been on is quite potent and, and powerful. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. No no pressure on the storytelling side of it now, but. Um, but I have to start off with the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. Well, I mean, I'll, there, there are many. I think uh, one that's connected to what we'll discuss is the um, launching of this line of reporting. It turned out, you know, in retrospect, to be a defining moment in the sense that it kind of altered my career path. And it was a moment where I was asked by my editor, what I would do as my next project. And normally that conversation occurs in December. And in this case, she sprung it on me a couple months early. And so I didn't have an answer prepared. And I had previously, previous to joining the New York Times, worked as an anthropologist. And during that time, I um, had spent times on time on ships uh, and so there I was sitting on the hot seat and I just sort of winged an answer, which was um, in terms of next projects or stories, my fantasy would, was to go out to sea and explore this world, which I knew to be wild, you know, and foreign and rich in stories, if only someone would trust me enough to go out and land them. And um, I said a little bit more, fully suspecting it would be enough to get me out of the office, but not enough to get greenlit. She said, that's interesting, you know, asked a couple of follow-ups and then asked me to prepare a memo. And I was shocked um, that I got to the memo stage, you know, memo meaning, you know, what would 10 stories look like within this subject matter? And off it began. And here we are, what, six and a half, seven years later, and I'm still in this world. I mean, I, I think what's what's fascinating to me is that, it, and 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 I and I and I mean this in the in the most respectful way possible. As I started to research a little bit about you and dig into some of your articles, I was like, man, this guy's like the Indiana Jones of investigative journalism. Like you have run the gamut, uh, and and this this book and some of the stories that are in here in in the Outlaw Ocean. I'm curious as to a what what prompted it, and then b what was maybe just a little bit of if you can give the listener that is tuning into the show right now that maybe is not is not familiar with you uh, why this was such an important topic for you. I'll go backwards. Um, it was important and attractive to me. It being the outlaw ocean as an ocean um, was attractive because as an investigative journalist, you have the luxury of time you know, you're afforded more space and freedom and creative license and most importantly, time to 
pursue stories that a beat reporter who has to turn out copy or a story within you know 24, 48, 72 hours. And um, uh, in my case, I had the mandate to do investigative enterprise reporting, come up with storylines that I cooked up. And but the expectation is that when you return from your wandering off in the wilderness, you know, journalistically, you'll have big game, you know, like really good, you know, topics that maybe are not new, but you have a new way to tell them, or you've discovered things that previously were not known, things that are broken mostly that need to be fixed. Um, so the Owl Ocean in some ways is the, you know, Amazon of force, you know, to wander through in that, uh, it's a sprawling space. There's very little journalism occurring out there. There's academic studies and some advocates doing stuff out there, but mostly it's this isolated realm. And, you know, it's, it's often thought of as barren, you know, you fly over it shades of blue, you might go to the coast and sunbathe on the beach, but you don't think of a bustling frontier a workplace, you know, 56 million people work out there, you know, and, um, you know, so, uh, one thing that attracted me was the opportunity to, to tell lots of pretty surprising stories. And then a lot of the stories were pretty dark and urgent. You know, the other thing that attracted me was the sense of importance of, um, what we'd be revealing. Uh, and then just the diversity, you know, almost like, um, the taxonomy is wide of uh, the kinds of things that are happening out, out there, many of them, you know, piracy and sea slavery and illegal whaling and arms trafficking and dumping of oil intentionally and all this sort of wildness that you often assume, you know, disappeared a century ago. And lo and behold, it is actually still happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the fascinating parts for me is, I mean, first and foremost, the fact that there's 57 million people working out on the waters is a bit shocking, uh, especially with the knowledge that there's very little law and legislation out there. And I think that's a little bit of what you're exploring in, in this book is, I, I don't know if there's a, a necessarily a question that you're trying to answer and more so of a of a perspective that you're trying to offer the reader of, of what it's actually like, you know, life out on, on the sea, life out on the ocean. Let, tell us about one of the stories. Cause I don't even know where to start with this. Cause there's so, there's such a, such a breadth of areas and angles to come at this. So maybe what I'll do is just hand over the torch to you and sort of say, what, what story out of this book, out of this adventure and this endeavor really stood out to you and, and if you can just give the listener a little bit of the story and then we can sort of piece that apart. Yeah, I mean, one, one point of context is to say that in some ways the mission of the reporting and of the book was best understood as um, more anthropology than physics, right? So like, you know, or an engineer, um, their job is to um, solve concrete problems, an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, is to do ethnography. It's to describe a world. And this was an ethnography. This was an anthropology of a world. And the world was the two-thirds of the planet that's water, where and it's this sort of frontier. It's quite especially the high seas. And um, so the international waters beyond 200 miles from shore. So, so that's important to know. And therefore, within that project, one of the goals of establishing the ethnography, if you will, was 
to to convey to people that you might have heard of Captain Phillips style Somali piracy and the BP spill, but there's a whole lot more out there that's crazy that's happening. And I want to broaden your understanding of the various species of players, not all bad, many of them, but um, uh, species and activities that are occurring out there. Okay, so that's the, the framework. And within that framework, the first chapter of the book was one of the original stories that ran in the New York Times of the seven pieces that ran in the Times. And it was about the what is said to be the longest law enforcement chase at sea ever. And it was this epic tale that I was lucky enough to be a part of uh, as an observer, in which you had on the one hand these vigilante conservationists um, in the form of the organization called Sea Shepherd, which is a direct action sort of offspring of Greenpeace, you know, ocean conservationists who are more aggressive than Greenpeace. Um, and they have a fleet of ships around the world and they do all sorts of things, including, you know, oppose whalers in Antarctica and ram their ships. And so you have these vigilante conservationists in Sea Shepherd on the one hand, who set out on a mission to find Interpol's most wanted arrest on site uh, scofflaw vessel, you know, an illegal fishing vessel that for a decade had been operating and stealing fish from illegal waters, uh, and no one had been willing or able to catch them and arrest them. So Sea Shepherd said, we're going to do it. We're going to. And then on the other hand, you have this ship that decided they weren't going to go down easy. And when Sea Shepherd finally found this ship called the Thunder in Antarctic waters, nets in the water, this epic chase began where Sea Shepherd and its two huge Navy level vessels began chasing the thunder from, you know, the Southern Ocean, the bottom of the planet, all the way up to the northern coast of Africa in this epic 110 day chase that, you know, had all these, you know, category five storms and, you know, perilous ice fields that people don't normally you know, navigate through, they go around. And in this case, the thunder decided to go through to try to chase, to shake their tail um, and so on. And I heard about it as the chase was in pursuit and convinced the relevant players in Sea Shepherd to let me um, get on board, find a way to get on their vessel and document the experience. And that piece, I think, is in some ways representative of the whole book in the sense that you have extra legal actors, really colorful characters operating outside of the law on both sides. You know, you've got the conservationist vigilantes and, and um, the illegal fishers. Uh, so uh, I think that was um, one of my favorite ones to tell, for sure. Nothing, nothing like a 110-day sea chase to, to start off our conversation, <laughs> just setting the bar high. Uh, okay. So, so you get on to, you get onto the boat with, with sea, sea shepherd and the, the, you know, the pursuit is happening. What, what was that experience like? What did you learn about? Because I think what I hear you saying that I think is relevant and important is that both parties are sort of acting outside of legality, outside of legislation in some ways. Um, so maybe just give the listener a little bit of context for what those individuals were like, what that experience was like being being on on that ship, uh, and and let's just go from there. Yes, yeah, so, so there were two main Sea Shepherd vessels that were involved in the chase: the Sam Simon and the Bob Barker. Those are you know the benefactors who helped buy those ships. You know each ship had about thirty to forty 
people working on board. Um, and they were, and they sort of stayed within a half mile of each other at all times. Um, uh, the captains of the two Sea Shepherd ships were kind of the new generation of Sea Shepherds. So younger, both were male, uh, younger guys who um, had uh, a fair amount of experience at sea, but were, were um, not, you know, they, they were in their uh, late 20s and 30s. And the, the crew on these ships, um, this is the case for Greenpeace and their vessels, and this is the case for Sea Shepherd, are some of the most diverse places I've, I've visited in both in gender and nationality, you know, there's the, the maritime world generally is, you know, overwhelmingly male fishing vessels, merchant Marine, and, um, not over 99% male. Um, but on these ships, it was 50, 50, uh, male, female, you know, a lot of very young idealistic. Um, and I say that not in a pejorative way, um, very passionate, um, folks who on the one hand from what i could assess were you know kind of eager to ha- you know have the adventure of being part of this sort of a effort um go to sea travel the world be sort of unmoored from land loving life but on the other hand we're also true believers in in the the very specific mission of protecting the ocean and and its occupants uh on the other side you have the thunder kind of a typical murky uh, vessel, uh, pretty late in its life, I think about 20, 25 years old, um, uh, mostly crewed by Indonesian young men, uh, captained by Chileans and Spaniards. Uh, Galicia in Spain is kind of this famous region in Spain where um, most of the major fishing uh, families come from. And there's a lot of crime, organized crime, um, involved in, you know, smuggling of everything under the sun. Um, and Galicia is kind of famous for that underworld. And the captain here was Galician, um, and the pres- presumed ownership of the ship, uh, seems to have been tied to Galicia, Spain. And, you know, it was a, a toothfish vessel. So this is, um, what, uh, some clever marketer, uh, a couple decades ago, change the name of this fish to make it sound more attractive. So it's now called Chilean sea bass on your hotel menu, Mm. but that's actually um, truly called Patagonian toothfish. And uh, it's a six foot, it's a huge fish. It's six feet uh, and ugly and, and, you know, looks prehistoric and they're bottom dweller dwellers um, in really icy dark waters in Antarctica, but they, um, they command a pretty nice, um, price on the market and they're abundant. And, um, uh, that's what this ship was, uh, um, fishing for. And is it, so you need a, uh, I'm assuming some form of, of permit or right to be able to, f- to, to fish these specific fish. And I'm assuming the thunder did not have that. So they're, they're illegally fishing in these waters. Yeah, that's right. You, you depending on where you are, you get, different permits and licenses, but the waters where they were, they had none of the permits. And this is not, you know, a first time offense. This is, um, the, the thunder was ranked on the top of Interpol's so-called purple list, which is it's bad boy, you know, arrest on site list of ships. And I think there were only seven or eight ships, um, on that list at the time. And, and thunder was at the top because for a decade they'd been engaged in flagrant violations and had racked up, you know, to the tune of, $67 million worth of profit from illegal fishing. So they, they were kind of the top, you know, 
of gangsters in the illegal fishing world. And, um, uh, yeah, they primarily, um, fished in, in waters that were either, you know, part of Australian waters or Chilean waters or, um, just protected waters where no one's supposed to be fishing. So d- describe the, describe the players in this game. Cause I think you, you sort of have given a, a little, you've sort of alluded to, you know, pe- people that are on the pursuit side, they're sort of in it for altruistic reasons. They're, you know, they're out there wanting to sort of make, make somewhat of a difference. Um, and on the other side, it sounds like they're, you know, they're trying, trying to make a living in some ways through, through crime, through organized, organized crime. Are we talking about like traditional sort of modern day pirates? Cause I think in some ways, People, I think this is an area that that you're that you're covering that a lot of people just don't have context for anymore, right? And so, um, like, are are would they be classified as sort of modern day modern day pirates? I think modern day pirates typically are thought of along the lines of what you found uh, 2008, 2011, um, in off the coast of Somalia, and these are you know a subsector of players who are on the water and they're targeting boats for the sake of robbing them and usually taking hostages to ransom them. And I think that's what people largely think of as modern day pirates. And and those sorts of pirates still exist and are not distinct to to um Somalia. You're finding a lot of that kind of piracy off the coast of Bangladesh, off the coast of Nigeria, um, in the South China Sea, uh, near Myanmar, um, organized crime rings who kidnap and and, um, ransom. Um, I think these guys, these illegal fishers are more poachers, you know, kind of, you think of poaching as folks on land who take, you know, tusks from elephants and don't really care that they're endangered or whatnot. And these folks are poachers in the sense that, um, you know, uh, they are taking fish and um, typically not really worrying about the rules um, in terms of permits and offloading and even identifying the fish or not catching or keeping certain fish that they're not supposed to, such as sharks. And, and it's important to also think of on the Thunder, you're thinking there's a bifurcated situation among the people on board, right? So there's the mm. crew, right? And those are largely, in this case, they're all Indonesian. And those guys have no say as to where they go, what they do. They may not even know whether they're in legal or illegal waters. So generally vis-a-vis kind of the crime occurring, they're not culprits. You know, they're kind of to some degree victims. And in many places in the world, when the, sh- when the ship gets arrested, those guys pay the heaviest price because they're typically undocumented migrants from poor countries and they don't really have um, the wherewithal, the political leverage, et cetera, the lawyers and friends at home who can help get them repatriated. So those guys are shafted and they're the least culpable. The other end of it are the officers and the captains. And those tend to be from a different country, usually the same country as the owner or operator of the ship. Um, They're better educated. They make better money. And if things go south, those guys usually know who to call. You know, and in this case, the, the like I said, the, the officers um, were Chilean and um, uh, and Spanish. And when this whole campaign that Sea Shepherd ran occurred, um, it brought huge attention on the situation. It was front page of the New York Times, and and uh, ultimately the Thunder uh, essentially ran, metaphorically ran out of steam and decided, you know, it, it couldn't keep this, uh, couldn't keep running. 
uh, and uh, there was no way to get new fuel. Nigeria, who had which had flagged it, which had given it the license to operate it, had revoked its flag, and so now it was a flagless vessel, and anyone legally could arrest it if they wanted to, et cetera. And so off the coast of Sao Tome and Principe, which is a you know island um, off the coast of Africa, the Captain Thunder sunk his own ship, and he you know ec- um, uh, evacuated his crew into lifeboats and called the folks, um, the captains of the Sea Shepherd ships and said they had run into something in the middle of the ocean. Um, There's no traffic anywhere nearby. Um, but said they had run into something and, the, and his ship was taking on water and he needed rescue immediately. And law of the sea is, you know, all, all other gripes, you know, are put aside when there's a, a situation like this and you have to, uh, it becomes a rescue mission. And that's exactly what Sea Shepherd did is they rescued all the guys and brought them on board. But soon thereafter, law enforcement showed up and arrested the officers, incarcerated those guys, and then repatriated the, the crew and proceeded on a, a prosecution of the officers, which actually ended up uh, succeeding, which is very unusual in the maritime world. But, you know, quietly, only a matter of months later, after these guys were prosecuted and jailed in Sao Tome and Principe, they were mysteriously let go and sent back home. Mm-hmm. And the theory is that, you know, there were some high-level negotiations between the countries um, to um, let these guys off. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, um, that's how it went. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so I think one of the one of the other things that, that really stood out to me is how much I don't know if how much is the right way to put it, but the the role that that slavery plays in in this sort of tale that that you're unfolding, and so um, can you just speak a little bit to how that how that occurs, what shows up, maybe maybe a little bit of a story around uh, either from the book or something that you just that stood out to you, because um, I think for a lot of people we we continue to hear about sex trafficking and in slave trading and whatnot, but it's largely so hidden from mainstream culture that that people aren't present to how it's actually happening. And I think one of the things that that stood out for me was you you sort of unpack some of those uh, some of those pieces and and how it's still very prominent um, with, within you know within the oceans within the sea trading. So if you can just go go from there. Yeah. So I mean, one thing to again big picture context to bear in mind is when you think of the people and the vessels that are out there in the water around the world, it's often helpful to think of them in a bifurcated fashion. There's the merchant marine, right, which is cargo, freighter, it's oil, it's wheat, it's cattle, it's Nike shoes, it's iPhones, it's container ships. It's, you know, that's the merchant marine. And 90% of what we consume on the planet comes by way of ship and is through that labor force and those vessels. And it's a different world. The rules that are written to apply there are stronger. The union presence in that realm is stronger and the abuses are fewer. They're not by any means perfect. Um, There are serious abuses there, but um, they tend to be abandonment or bamboozling of workers, wage theft, um, occasional violence, uh, but for the rape, um, uh, but for the most part, sea slavery is not something you find or abusive stowaways. You, you have crimes that occur in these realms. The other realm, and actually the more robust realm in terms of the number of people out on the water, is the fishing realm, right? And and the, that is a, a whole different world. There are more vessels, there are more people working. It's a poor industry. There's a very little union presence. There's um, a lot of exemptions that applied historically to fishing boats. Uh, that 
allowed them certain freedoms um, from labor laws, for example, or human rights laws um, in fishing. And huge, the, the, the majority of the attention that I pay and the reporting I do is in the fish, fishing realm, the global fishing realm. In that realm, the problem of so-called sea slavery, which is to say debt-bonded, kidnapped, uh, bamboozled, forced, various versions of forced trafficked labor. Um, it's a real problem. And um, there are hot spots on the, on the planet where it's, it's worse. And the South China Sea, so the, the body of water near uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, that body of water is a place where there's long been a very um, robust uh, uh, sea slavery problem, largely because Thailand is a middle-class country, has a huge and bloated um, fishing fleet for various historic reasons, um, too many boats on the water, not enough guys to work them. Um, Thais generally, you know, less than 2% unemployment. Thais themselves, Thai women don't work in the sex industry and Thai men don't generally work as crew on fishing boats. And yet these are two huge industries within the country. Who works them? Migrants, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, right? These are desperately poor neighboring countries where the people are very desperate and they they um, sneak across the border with a robust pipeline of traffickers or labor brokers, as they're called, and they think they're going into, the women think they're going into the work as maids in houses. They're called domestics, and they're usually ended up into the, in karaoke bars and sex workers, and the men think they're heading to lucrative construction jobs, and they're typically heading towards the ports. And um, again, the spectrum of scenario where the, these folks end up um, in this work are either the one end, which is a debt bonded scenario where you're a small villager in Cambodia, you meet a guy at some party, he says, hey, you want a job, I can get you a good job in Thailand. Um, the guy says, sure, that sounds great. That's more money than I could make in my in an entire year. Um, but I don't have any money to pay my way in. I can't get across the board. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Meet me at this location. And now you're on the pipeline and you're in the back of a truck and you make your way across the border. Relevant guards are paid. You're picking up more guys along the way. You think you're headed towards a construction site somewhere inland. Before long, you're at the port. You don't speak the language. You're not even literate. You don't have any money. You now have a debt to the guy who brought you in. The debt gets handed to the boat captain. Boat captain pays off the trafficker, and now he owns you, right? He owns you to the tune of 200 bucks in the hole, and you have to pay him back. That's a standard debt bonded scenario. The other scenario is straight up shanghaiing or kidnapping, where, you know, a guy, there's a, you know, again, there's an acute shortage. If a boat captain realizes he needs to get out of port within 24 hours, and he's three men short. He can't find those workers to work that, and he can't pull the nets sufficiently. He can't do the job if he's that short. So he's got to find some workers fast. So that's when some some of these shadier characters turn to labor brokers who are plugged in with the karaoke bars and all this sort of syndicates, and they say, hey, I'm, I'm three men short. Can you help me out? He's like, I got you. I'll have three men here by tomorrow. They might be unconscious. They might not be happy when they wake up, but they might not even speak your language. Most likely won't, but I'll get you the men and you pay me this price. And that happens, you know, guys carousing with prostitutes at a karaoke bar. 
he next thing he wakes up and he's on a ship and he realizes he's been roofied and he's been drugged. And, um, and, you know, we, we interviewed a, a guy who had that very story, uh, had that happen to him. And then he was stuck at sea for a year and a half and sold boat to boat until he escaped. Wow. And so are, are, are a lot of these, like are, are a lot of these young men that are, that are just looking to provide for their family? Are they older? Like what's, what, what did you notice about this sort of like age range? And I mean, obviously the, this, you know, it sounds like the class, the, the classes are, are, are pretty apparent, but where did they fall in terms of age range and, and background? I mean, so uh, the, the ship that we spent the most time um, on, which was a true, you know, sea slave ship, you know, which was way out at sea and took us a long time to get out there. But once we were on it, we're like, we knew it was, it was 40 Cambodian crew. And there was, there was a kid on there that I'm pretty sure couldn't have been a day older than 13. And then there was other guys on there who were crew, all Cambodian, um, who I would say is low, early forties and everyone sort of fell in between. Um, the kid ended up there because his uncle was also, uh, on board and the two of them had traveled across the border together with the same labor broker. Some of these folks escape and never get paid. Others try to escape and die in the process. Others walk off after a stint. And even though they were none too happy to have been forced into the work, but they got used to it and they get paid something and they even come back, you know, um, because to them it's, you know, um, the debt structure is just sort of part of the business model. And Mm. um, if they don't buck the system and break the rules or whatever, then they can make it out alive and maybe even get paid something. It's a fraction of what they would be owed even by Thai Sanders under the law, but it's something more than they would make um, if they were at their rice paddy in, you know, the middle of Cambodia. So, so it varies uh, in terms of their stories. And and are these like are these dangerous environments? I mean, obviously the the fishing part is is a very dangerous environment just just based on of of what I know. But but is this a dangerous environment for you to be in? Like, were you ever in danger or or felt in danger? And 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 for for these men, obviously they're being held against their will, so it's a bit of a uh, obviously a threatening situation for them. But I'm just trying to paint the picture for the listener because I think when we hear these things. You know, we assumed armed guards, or yeah, I can kind of hear you know some of my some of my folks wanting to ask those questions. And so, can you paint a bit of a picture for us in terms of what that's like for the individual that's on these boats, and then and then for yourself as the as journalist, sort of going along on these experiences? Um, was that was that a dangerous place to be? Yeah, I mean, so I think the dangers are different in severity and type depending on the two different players, right? So the dangers for me versus the dangers for those guys. Um, for those guys, meaning the you know 20-year-old Cambodian deckhand, the dangers are intense, you know, beyond the pale shocking. And I'd covered a lot of, you know, wars and, and industries that are pretty rough, you know, uh, coal mining, truck driving, sex work in the U.S., et cetera. And um, I'd never encountered a uh, workforce that was, you know, look, the the UN interviewed this very same demographic, Cambodian deckhands on Thai ships um, in 2009. And 49% of the deckhands that they interviewed had witnessed murder on board, had witnessed it firsthand of other crew. Um, So the severity of the beatings um, and the the likelihood of um, people being murdered or people 
dying because they fall ill and there's no way that ship's going back to port to deal with that problem is severe. And for those guys, obviously the the, the risks are the workplace, but also um, talking to me. Now, I was only ever, I didn't stow away as much as I wanted to convince my editors to let me, but like um, I, I, I was always on ships with permission. And that obviously was a thorny negotiation. But in the cases where the photographer and translator and I were able to talk our way onto, onto the ships, we had to comply with certain rules, right? Usually the captain said, look, you don't photograph me. You don't identify my ship. And if I tell you to get out of the way, you get out of the way. Like I run this ship and what I tell you to do, I do. So and we would agree to those. We couldn't agree to other things. Um, uh, if they said, "Look, we have to. We're, we want to see what pictures you take before you know before you get off the ship," we can never. At the times, we could never agree to that. We couldn't get mm-hmm. on board. Um, but um, so I was there, and so the minute the captain allowed me and my team on board, we kind of were safe because there was no reason for them or anyone on board to do harm to us. The deckhands weren't going to do harm to us because they'd experienced the wrath of the officers and the officers weren't going to do anything else because the captain had said we were on board. And if we were told to stop talking with someone, then we usually did. Occasionally we would try to surreptitiously talk with them a little bit in the best we could. Um, but the real worry wasn't us. They weren't going to do anything mm. else. They were just going to tell us to leave. Um, the real worry was what would happen to those guys that we talked to. Um, and you could sense their fear in talking with us. Um, you, you know, their darting eyes and looking. The boat. There's one character in this hierarchy who's the key player, and they're called the bosun. And the bosun is typically, if you have a, a Thai officer who's a Cambodian crew, your bosun is going to be the ethnicity of the crew, so Laotian or Burmese or Cambodian. They're going to speak that language. They're going to be ethnically of that people, but they're going to be loyal and fluent as well to the officers. So Thai, they'll speak Thai and they'll be loyal to, and the bosun is the person who administers the punishments, who does the demonstrative sort of performative killing, um, who does sort of keeps intel on, you know, the, the workforce. And he's really the one guy who prevents mutiny. And um, it does so with a pretty iron, kind of preemptive hand and you know so when i'm talking with late at night you know as they're eating uh after pulling net you know some of these guys and i watch their eyes darting up to the second floor wheel room that's because they know the bosun's watching them and so you know like you see how nervous they are but uh for me and my crew the real dangers wasn't the was never the people well there were some isolated incidents where we were really at risk uh, when we were working on trying to talk to escaped, recently escaped sea slaves who were on the run trying to get away from the hired bounty hunters um, that were searching for them on the one hand. And then we were embedded with the sort of underground railroad of anti-trafficker advocates who were trying to find these guys first and get them to safety. And, we found, you know, this is just one of a handful of examples of, we found one case, we were, you know, trying to get to the mountains of Borneo to quickly get to this guy and interview him. He was on the run. He had left his ship and run away only 48 hours before. And in the middle of the interview, the guys with guns showed up and said the interview's over and it got kind of physical between us and them. And uh, uh, yeah, it was a very scary, bad, and, you know, in retrospect, very dangerous situation. But again, true danger, the guy we left behind, the guy we were interviewing. 
who we yeah. were not allowed to take with us. That guy probably didn't live or is back yeah. on the ship. Yeah. What's what's that like for you to be in those environments? Because obviously you're you're putting yourself, you know, you're putting yourself into potential harm's way and in putting yourself in an environment where you where you know it's it's a it's a little bit dangerous but like what do you i guess what are you hoping for for people to take away from this because you're really you're really putting yourself in a situation that most people wouldn't thrust themselves into um intentionally and so i feel like there's a, a very sort of potent message behind all of this that you're trying to convey through the book through the articles to people is it is it simply that you're wanting them to have a, a better perspective of what this environment is like are you are you hoping that people are are going to get engaged in in starting to shift some of this culture or or is it simply the broader understanding of of how these things have come about and how they fit into our societies from a cultural standpoint yeah i mean i I think um there is a real sense of mission right that um if i'm honest is somewhat guilt one of its fuels is guilt. The, the the more time you spend on these kinds of stories and the more you see, the more guilty you feel when you return home to your mm. life of luxury and remove. And to me, that ends up funneling into wanting to double down and do more of it because I realize uh, I got to leave and those folks have to stay and I owe it to them and to what I saw to really work hard on the story write it well, report it well, get it out well, and then get the next one, you know, and, and really stick with it. So that's one of the things, that's the sort of loop I got in with this series in particular, where uh, when, you know, it was time for me to switch topics for the paper, I decided, no, I think I'm going to stay with this because it's just, it's too urgent to put down. And there are a lot of reporters covering other topics and mm. I, they don't just need another one of me. So, so there is a sense of mission and the specific mission is, has the goal of um, trying to uh, first shine light on a place that's pretty dark and you know get out there and then do a really good job, a fair job, a rigorous job, a evocative job of rendering so that people are convinced by its truth and emotionally moved by its power. And those people are average consumers who think twice about Hey, this tuna is only a dollar ninety nine a can. How is that possible? You know, like how could how could you pull tuna from the other side of the world and have it a week, two weeks later on my shelf for a dollar ninety nine? Like, you know, and think about the hidden costs that might have made that you know very well might have made that tuna possible. All the way to lawyers who sue companies on behalf of these folks, to human rights advocates who've been working on this stuff forever but haven't had anyone pay attention to what they're seeing and here I am trying to help change that and you know the various different stakeholders that are and also honestly you know the Oceanas and the WWFs of the worlds the World Wildlife Foundation you know these conservation environmental groups that do really important good work on the ocean included but for a long time we're not really thinking about the people you know they were just focused on the issues below the waterline and forcing them to change their narrative when you're ranking fish and your monterey monterey bay aquarium has a report card on safe different types of fish to buy right like and that report card used to be entirely environmental it didn't take sea slavery into account at all that has changed you know and that's not just because of my reporting ap and the guardian and other folks have you know done really great reporting as well and that's applied pressure to change how the enviros think of human rights issues, and then also how the anti-trafficking folks think about the enviro issues. You know, the 
the ITF is the world's largest seafaring union. They're very concerned about the people out there and advocating for their hat, but they haven't historically been as invested in some of the environmental issues and, and, you know, kind of forcing these two different stakeholders to, to think about the other side. So that's, that's one of the missions. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess, you know, I, just being mindful of, of time here and, and, you know, obviously I, I could, I could talk to you for hours and just sort of pull out these stories and, and sort of listen to this. I feel like, uh, yeah, my grandfather used to tell me stories as a kid. I would, you know, run in their bedroom and he would tell me stories about war. You know, he was, he fought in world war two and he would tell me stories about you know, animals and stuff like that. And I, you know, I feel like there's a, there's a, an essence to what you're doing here that, is sort of capturing parts of humanity that we often don't see and we often don't hear about. And I'm curious, I don't know if this ties into the the anthropology of it or if this is just a cultural piece, but I'm curious as to where the, the sort of like masculine culture fits into these environments. Because I think, you know, you said 99% of these, uh, you know, these individuals are, are men and, is there a differentiation between the the sort of masculinity that you see in these environments? Is it is it a accentuation of of machoism, or is it just that that corruption has sort of gotten into this environment and 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 started to morph these these individuals and you know their their values and and belief systems? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a really good question, and in the book, it's it's a thin but thread that travels through the chapters. And the book um, has several of those sorts of through lines um, that pop up, you know, whether we're talking about murder of stowaways or arms trafficking or whaling or coral reef or what have you. One is the mental health question of kind of what does this space and this type of work do to people who are in it for long periods of time? And what did it do to me, and how does that inform? And, and there is a ma- there is a gender, there is a masculine element to that answer. Um, and the other is just the straight kind of to what degree are some of these concerns, these problems, possibly made worse by some of the less positive elements of masculine culture. So a couple answers. One is, um, you know, ships are unusually hierarchical places. Like I think even they have almost a military hierarchy, but and then some. Uh, because in taking the vertical hierarchy of captain, officers, bosun, crew, and then putting them in a spaceship and putting them out in this realm where governments really don't have much ability to enforce rules, you have captains not just being the top, you know, brass, but God, you know, like what they say goes, um, and to a degree that you don't find on bases. And that hierarchy, I think, is one of the things, and that culture. Um, is one of the things that um, allows for the level of violence and the level of silence that occurs surrounding some of the things that happen on ships. Um, so that's one sort of very masculine thing. The hygienic situations on ships, again, we're not talking about Navy ships and we're not talking about the well-financed bumblebee tuna you know, ships. We're talking about like the majority of, ship, of long-haul fishing ships, which are, you know, like when I was on only months ago, South Korean squid vessel, you know, these are really, really incredibly dirty places. And, mm. um, you know, rats and roaches abound and um, just, you know, decaying fish and smells and 
So, um, and, and I don't know, maybe this is a stereotypic uh, notion of masculinity, but I do think the the culture of pride that we in this workforce, we don't complain ever. You never complain. You know, you barely should talk, but you certainly don't talk in the form of complaining about things. And if you do, you're very looked down upon. And that is a very macho kind of vibe that is very pronounced on in this work. Uh, and it factors into the sort of um, hygienic uh, conditions. Shame and the pride specifically that adheres to when deckhands, especially migrants, do get off the ship and they have not a cent to their name for the last nine months of backbreaking work and they go back to their village and they do not tell everyone in the village that this is actually a scam and mm. terrible things happen to them. They don't tell them because it's embarrassing. They, they left town as sort of a hero. They borrowed money from their cousin and they sold their moped and they sold their grandfather's ox to raise the money for the flight to Manila to get the flight to Chile to get on the vessel. And everyone thought, oh my gosh, when he comes back, he's going to be a big man. He's going to buy that stuff back. He's going to make all this money that he's, he was promised. He gets back and bad things have happened. He's got no money and he's got debt. Like he's not going to talk about that, you know, and that I think perpetuates the trafficking problem in a big way. So these are just some examples of where I think masculinity amplifies the harm in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really, really fascinating. And I mean, I think the the natural part that comes up within me is the is the fixer, right? It's like, well, what do we do? You know, the question of like, what do we do about that? And And I don't know. I'm kind of getting the sense that it's maybe not such a relevant question at the time, you know, and I kind of hear just what you've laid out here today is is more of a uh, an educational segue into the sphere rather than a, a call to arms or action. Is is that is that right or am I sort of mis, misreading that? I think I think your intuition is almost right in the sense that the question at the altitude of how do we fix the outlaw ocean is too high an altitude to actually make sense. You don't, it's like saying, how do I solve injustice? Well, first you stop asking that question and you bring it down to how do I solve, solve domestic violence or how do I solve homophobia or how do I solve, you know, police, uh, um, on black violence or, you know, like you specify the form of injustice that you're speaking to and the solutions are going to be distinct, right, to that form. Mm. So similarly, in the outlaw ocean, it is a anthropology of a universe. And there's a lot of amazing things happening out there. And the solutions for how do we deal with, you know, ships like the Thunder that governments are ignoring while they do illegal things versus how do we deal with the post 9-11 problem of murder of stowaways, which got really acute, or uh, illegal whaling, or the fact that I like salmon, but I don't want to eat something that's been tainted by slavery. You know, each of these is, dis- or sea plastic, or, you know, each of these has its own set of, and, and there are good solutions. And I do have a duty to try to shed light on those things, or else I'm just engaged in misery porn, you know, like, um, and the book has an appendix where I try to go category by category and say, hey, look, I'm not an advocate. I'm a journalist. So I will tell you what I've heard from smart people that I've come to trust because what they say makes sense. And here's a compilation of things I've heard in reporting on each of these things that might actually help them. 
But again, like your intuition said, at the altitude of how do you solve the outlaw ocean, you don't solve the outlaw ocean. You know, it's yeah. a place. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, listen, Ian, this has been really uh, such a such a neat conversation. And I've, I've really enjoyed our time. And I feel like I feel like this is one of those conversations where I get to feel out of my element. I get to feel out of my depth and uh, and and sort of like let you you know do your thing and, and guide the conversation and and I feel like I've learned a lot and I hope I hope the listeners have have as well. I I also just want to say you know one of the things that I found fascinating about your work, um, not only it just outside of the fact that your your writing is is incredible. It really is. It really is something that just sort of like draws you in but something that i really loved was like the people that write reviews on your work are so engaged like yeah i i have never seen reviews where people write like a short story about mm-hmm. you know about you and about the writing and about and i was like wow i didn't know that people were so engaged with this mm-hmm. and so so for people that are out there that are, are listening to this conversation, um, you know, certainly head on over and, and check out the Outlaw Ocean. Um, it, it's, an, it's an incredible journey and, and my, my producer's now obsessed with it. Um, but for people that want to learn more about you, because you've, in, you've now endeavored into a, new, into a new realm. And so can you just give a little bit of context for that and where people can learn more about you and, and your upcoming projects? Well, first of all, thank you for ridiculously generous words um uh, uh you know um and i too was touched and kind of taken aback by how reviewers have handled the work i was deathly afraid of them you know um uh because uh, as a journalist you write stories and you know you get the angry letters but you know um it's a different thing you put this book of six years out there and you think okay i may get eaten alive yeah, so I, I created a nonprofit journalistic organization, small, five of us, um, to continue producing to the tune of maybe five, six big stories a year that we then place not just um, in the Times, but um, in we have a piece coming up in the New Yorker. We had a piece last month in NBC News, and and then translate into a bunch of languages. And so we try to um, do these kinds of stories, largely reported at sea really narrative, try to really work on making them evocative and ideally on topics of urgency. And, you know, they all live at, it's called the Outlaw Ocean Project is the 5013C. Um, And um, they all uh, live on the website there, which is theoutlawocean.com. But then they are published by lots of different venues. And then we also take the stories which are the bread and butter, and then try to convert them into other mediums. So podcasts or video games or most recently music uh, and work with other kinds of creators who speak in other languages, if you will, to give the reporting new life. And and um, music has been uh, the biggest, uh, in the first nine months of our existence, the biggest front of that effort. But we're moving into podcasts and games and other things, animation. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks again so much for coming on the show. I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. You know, congrats on on all the success and and what's coming up. And and for everyone that's out there listening, if you're if you're wanting to learn more, we'll have the links in the show notes for all this. Um, don't forget to to share this with somebody that you know is is interested in this topic, is wanting to learn a little bit more about this, or that you just think would find this fascinating. Um, so man it forward and until next week this is Connor Beaton signing off join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual